Hello, I'm Dr. Gay Carlson, president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And this is the first of a series that I'm going to call Screenside Chats. Some of you may remember that uh, FDR had, during the worst of the Depression and uh, World War II, uh, radio chats for the American public to keep them informed and keep them comforted. I don't know that I can keep you necessarily comforted, but I wanted this to be an informal experience and I wanted it to be an interview uh, of people who are able to help us out in these troubled times. And they're meant to share timely clinical practice and other information. Um, there'll be key topics that have to do with COVID-19, but also other issues that I think are confronting us. I'm hoping they'll be informative, comfortable, fill a niche not addressed by materials otherwise available. Um, today's topic, I was looking for a good title for today's topic. I went through several of them and uh, what I ended up with was what I'm calling improvised telepsychiatry or telepsychiatry when everything can't be perfect. I'm calling it that because the vast majority of us, the vast majority of us are coming to telepsychiatry on the fly. Um, I know I've attended workshops and I've read the excellent toolkit submissions that we have on our ACAP website. However, we're now often working from home, not in the clinic, uh, and we're going into patients' homes, not into their clinics. So this is an opportunity to do a home visit, which won't be the same as an office visit. As always, making clinical uh, practice judgments for your patients is your responsibility and you remain solely responsible for them. I'm really pleased to have with me today, Dr. David E. Roth from the uh, Aloha State of Hawaii. I was teasing him before about how lucky we were to have him be the first person to um, be interviewed here because he is a pro, I am not a pro. And so we'll watch him be really good at this and me kind of bumble along. Dr. Roth is an ACAP Distinguished Fellow, as well as a Fellow of the American Association of Pediatrics, Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and, a triple board, and is triple board certified in pediatrics, adult psychiatry, neurology, and child and adolescent psychiatry. So that's a lot of credentials. Um, he's president of Mind and Body Works, uh, Incorporated. He's on ACAP's telepsychiatry committee and provided information and videos to the telepsychiatry toolkit. He also gets royalties from Amazon and Apple from the sale of his telehealth books. He's done telepsychiatry as part of his office practice for many years, for which reason we thought he would be a great person to ask to address the copy, uh, to address this topic to begin with. So welcome, Dr. Roth. Well, thank you. You're going to give a little introduction to yourself sort of over and above what I said, and then I'll ask you the first question, right? Absolutely. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Into this mess, right? Absolutely. Well, for me, it's been a fun okay. journey. And it's become my mission, and especially my academic mission, to really help our colleagues do telepsychiatry well. I find that many of our very competent colleagues don't, and it's really not their fault. They weren't trained on how to do it. So I'm here to both help with fixing that problem and inspiring people to know they can really be their best professional selves in this new so I've been doing telepsychiatry since 2000. It was when I felt that the consumer grade technology was not only uh, good, enough, but now pervasive enough in our society that we didn't need those clunky big machines at 
that were a bit difficult to use and only at specialized centers. So I was able to treat patients uh, across three states and across all the Hawaiian islands, in homes, in schools, and even when they were homeless. And I really that transition and it impacted the quality of my life because I didn't have to fly to neighbor islands or drive over an hour to serve my patients in the rural and underserved areas of Hawaii. And I was really surprised when I started sharing these stories and how great it was and how much I was really enjoying it and how much my patients were enjoying it and logistical advantages. I encountered a lot of resistance and I encountered the resistance from our colleagues. They were skeptical, they were anxious, they were concerned how to do it. And I think, as you point out, the old formal telepsychiatry was more cumbersome technically. And so I finally figured out why did I have such an easy transition to doing this? And it's because I had already been trained. So my story actually begins with my father. My father got his first video camera. It was a film camera when I was born. And so by the time I was in elementary school, I was also holding the camera and helping film the, the, the family events. By 16, my friends and I were making our own music videos, our own nature documentaries. And for 10 years growing up, I watched my father host the Doctor Is In television show on the local station in Louisville, Kentucky. And so I kind of grew up with this uh, natural inclination and comfort, both in front of and behind the camera. And I realized that there are things about that level of comfort and experience that plugged in naturally for me, and my colleagues didn't have that advantage. And that helped me organize some of the workshops that we've been doing at the ACAP annual of meetings since 2014 and workshops at the American Telemedicine Association for the purpose of helping people like yourself, people who are very competent at being psychiatrists, but not yet comfortable with how to do the same quality of work in the telepsychiatry venue. And so I'm happy you're giving me the opportunity today to answer some of your questions because I'm sure there's some of the same questions other people have. Good. Well, that, that's, that is an interesting journey, and I certainly did not have that path. So let me start out with um, my burning question, which is, what are some of the most important ways that telepsychiatry from home to home differs from what I consider to be more traditional telepsychiatry, where you're doing it from your office and you're going into the clinic uh, where the patient is sitting and, and you might have an extra pair of hands to help you? Um, or that um, you've had the opportunity to see the child in person first, and then you're doing follow-up interviews subsequently, because I think those are different contingencies. I think you're right. I think it varies different than when you're receiving care as a patient in a medical setting. You know, everything about how we design, build, grade, appoint, and staff our medical settings builds to the moment that the doctor enters the room to engage the patient. So the patient is feeling primed and ready in a sacred space at a sacred time for this sacred purpose. In telepsychiatry, you take away all of those trappings. You take away all the vestments that build that moment to being an important, sacred, special moment. All of a sudden, poof, you are on the screen they have just stopped whatever normal thing they were doing in their home. And it's incumbent upon us as the telepsychiatrist to create that sense of a sacred place and a sacred time within their own space. And the only tools you have to inspire that moment and inspire that trust and forge that relationship is what you bring to the camera. 
It's what's behind you. It's what you're wearing. It's your composure. It's your style. And it's whether your bedside manners can come through the camera and really bring the patient from what was happening two minutes before in their home into their home now being the place where they receive real care. And then that's a big responsibility on us. And it's not always easy. One of my friends likened it to being a stand-up comic. All of a sudden, the, the curtain goes back. You're on stage, and you've got to get your audience. You've got to shake them out of whatever mindset that they and bring them into to that moment and really hold their attention, keep them engaged, either forge a relationship or strengthen the one you have, and then the whole time keep that going with just how you communicate. At the same time, delivering the clinical care that was your ostensible agenda, at the same time, keeping mindful of the time, and ideally at the same time, doing some of the documentation without being distracted. It's a huge job that's now all on you and it must be done well or else you end up seeing a little disinterest or a little bit of uncomfortableness or at worst, a lower level of clinical care because we can't get them engaged as we normally could. So in addition to all the other balls we have to have in the air, as you say, you have to be a, a, an entertainer and really captivate, uh, really captivate the people. Have you found that there are uh, some things that you just put on hold and decide that there's another way you need, you're going to have to do it. You and I had talked before about things, certain kinds of testing or certain kinds of kids or certain kind of circumstances um, that just don't lend itself well to telepsychiatry. What, what would you put on that in that category? Well, really, in, in my practice, I've tried to incorporate everything I do in my best practices into my telepsychiatry work. And you're right. Sometimes it requires a different procedure for the office. Sometimes our office staff has to work with the patient and the family to send them information or obtain completed assessments from them. The only thing I've had to really take off the table are things that if we change it at all, we interrupt or dilute the validity of it. So things like an ADOS or a BOT2 that are very standardized instruments, we can't figure out yet how to replicate that. I'm sure one of the people viewing this will come up with the idea and I'm hoping they share it with us. But that's really the only thing I've taken off the table. Everything else either takes a little bit more time because especially with the smaller kids, we have to spend more of our time uh, maintaining rapport, keeping them engaged, doing more interactive and collaborative activities because we can lose their attention more quickly because they can be distracted by their environment because it's their environment, not ours. Our office may be boring except for the toys we put in it, but theirs is filled with their favorite things and their iPad may be sitting one feet away from the camera. So I've had to slow down some of my process a little bit, but not tremendously so. A two session evaluation may become a three, but it's not extending it tremendously. We're still able to get the work done but that involves utilizing some of the staff and also a little bit of offline technology, things like web portals for psychological instrument completion and mobile technology like apps that are helpful in obtaining and tracking data. So we'll, we'll get into that towards the end of, of this uh, interview because we, you and I have already talked about some of these things. Um, so let me start off with, um, 
safety procedures? What that, That's probably something that we need to um, get off the table or onto the table right away. Tell, tell us what, uh, what you do as far as safety procedures are concerned. Absolutely. So safety and privacy issues are always important to be addressed just as they are in any venue. In this one, we have to educate the consumer, educate the patient about how to uh, take care of these issues in their own home and let us know a bit more about their circumstances. So from a privacy standpoint, helping them pick out the right room, ensuring that there's privacy of the spoken conversation and people coming in and out, making sure that we understand who's in the room with them. And from a safety point of view, understanding where they are. So if we must contact 911 resources for them, we know their address. If they're in a different location than normal, establishing where that's at. These are some of the procedures that we've had to outline in our clinic to acknowledge the differences in the delivery location that can now occur with telepsychiatry. But other than that, most of the procedures remain the same. We can't necessarily rely on auxiliary staff to help us if a patient is in distress, but that's where having things in your electronic health record already populated, things like next of kin, emergency contact, the parent's information, uh, guardian's information, so that you can use a second line of communication, like a cell phone or a landline, to engage those resources or engage 911 services. So that brings up something that we didn't talk about before, but might not be a bad idea. And that is, what should you have in front of you when you're conducting that interview? And it, it sounds like that's that's one of the things that you probably ought to have. Um, I mean, one of the things I realized we should have is just their email address. So when you get disconnected, you can rebook the appointment or, you know, th things like that, that I just never really thought about. Another thing that's related to that is something that's come up. And that is, given the uh, sheltering in place that we have with people under a lot of stress, likelihood of domestic violence is likely to increase. What would you, how would you handle a situation where you're feeling somewhat uncomfortable, but you're not quite ready to call 911? How would you go about handling that situation? Well, it's the same challenge we have in the regular clinic, in which case we're required to report before we have all the facts. Uh, our job as a, as a first-line reporter is to report our concerns, not to complete an investigation and then report the facts of the case. So I think we're under the same obligation that if our clinical instincts are aroused, we need to you know, initiate the support of those auxiliary services to do the proper investigation figured out. So I don't think it's changed too much, but that's where it comes back to being comfortable with, are you doing your best work in the telecadry venue so that you can then take those results and take your instincts to the bank, essentially, um, that you have the same level of confidence in your clinical assessment that you would if they were sitting in front of you? Well, but if they were sitting in front of me, David, and, and I had some concerns about the child, I, you know, I usually see the parent and the child separately uh, at, at a certain point. The parent would be out of the room and I would be able to talk to the child and, you know, sort of ask what's, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Um, I might not be able to do that in their one bedroom apartment without a lot of privacy. So I was wondering, you know, do you call, can you call somebody back under those circumstances? Can you, can you do, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily 
press the panic button without getting a little more information at that point. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering what you would do unless you just have to decide you can't do it. And so you make the call. Well, it's, part of it depends on the age and developmental capacity of the person that you want to interview. If they're a competent youth that can have a independent conversation with you, then certainly having them put on headphones, kicking the parents out of the room, or you know, arranging a second session with a little bit more privacy, those certainly could be easily accomplished. The challenge, of course, is if it's someone who either developmentally or because of their age is not able to be an independent uh, subject of your interview, I think we just have to have a low threshold for making the report and letting the uh, proper agency sort it out. Um, so that brings up a little bit of the question about turn taking. How do you uh, take it from the top in terms of a um, an interview? How how you would do it? I'll I'll tell you. I'll show you mine if you show me yours. You can we can talk about how we do these things. Um, Tell, tell me how you uh, would do an evaluation of a um, 10-year-old boy, say, for instance, who you know is having problems with aggressive behavior and paying attention and not doing his classwork and, and arguing with his parents. And his, Give me a scenario for how you would do that evaluation with telepsychiatry. Well, we all have our own styles. And the first thing I'd like to make as a point is you can do it in telepsychiatry. You just have to be a little more overt and obvious about it. So if your tendency is to meet with the parents first and then meet with the child alone and then meet with them together, you can certainly do that in telepsychiatry. You just have to tell them, this is what we're gonna do. And at this time in the session, we'll switch and I'll have you guys leave. And at this point, I'll have the child come get you guys and bring you back in. And you can give them that architecture uh, because your style and pattern may be different than mine. But I would say just do whatever works for you. The, the overall structure of the sessions, I tend to follow in shorter sessions, a three act play. And in longer sessions like evaluation, more of a five act play structure so they tend to start with that introduction and initiation, an explanation of my role, an explanation of the child's role, uh, finding out what they know is happening, what their expectations are, outlining how things will go, uh, outlining the expected process that I tend to run. And then we start that collaborative storytelling in act two, work through the, the majority of an act three, moving towards wrapping things up in act four with a few minutes to spare so that the closing in act five always kind of brings it together, identifies the appointment that we're gonna do as a follow-up, reviews whatever we need to do uh, to prepare for that next session, and then the traditional goodbyes appropriate to that culture, ending with a few minutes to finish the documentation. So as long as you have that kind of a structure, the patients know intuitively that narrative structure because it's in every movie and every television show and it helps them follow through with you if they know what's coming next and know when they should be volunteering certain things which eliminates to some degree the traditional my hand is on the doorknob and the oh by the way question <laughs> i haven't encountered i haven't done this long enough yet to have that happen but that i'm waiting for that one um what um, do you use, the, the way I do though, 
evaluations, the way I did evaluations before this all happened is I always sent rating scales out to parents and teachers first. And so I had a fair amount of information before I saw the people and I could kind of hit the ground running. Um, we have sort of special circumstances now, which aren't necessarily telepsychiatry related, but how do we get information to families? How do we get it back? How do we get rating scales to kids? How do we get it back? Um, and the few, and the ones that I've done so far, people are working from cell phones. We're not talking about people who have um, uh, computers with printers and all that sort of business. We're talking about shoestring people. What have you What have you done under those circumstances? So, in an ideal circumstance, we will be also sending out our email packet with our registration forms, the baseline clinical scales I get for most cases. And based on the referral question, I usually add appropriate um, scales either completed by self or parent. And then we would have the ones they would distribute to the teachers as well if it's in that kind of a situation. You're right that the majority of the time they would be sent back by secure email or they would be sent back to us by fax or the patient or family would bring them to the first session early enough to pre-register in the clinic and I would have a chance to review them before the session time or take the first few minutes of the session time to review those documents. There have been occasions we had to be creative and some of those include cell phone cameras literally taking a picture of the completed document and texting it to uh, to the office, either texting to the email or to the phone. Obviously, that is not the preferred way. We want to have things more HIPAA compliant, even when we don't need to be. But in a pinch, that has served that function. One of the other things we do is some of our more complicated assessment tools are on the portal that is maintained by the tool company. So like Western Psychological Services, WPS, some of their tools are in a web portal. So you send an email to the patient, they use the link to then log in and complete the form, and then you can score it online and download the reports to your own computer. And so we found that very helpful for more complex assessment tools like the ABAS-3. Do you have a subscription to Western Psychological or how, how, do, how does that work in terms of the nitty gritty? No, uh, it, it's part of when you buy the assessment tool itself. You can choose to buy the pen and paper version or the web portal version with the uh, scoring built into it. So I've chosen to pay a little more to have the web portal, uh, especially because a lot of my patients live on other islands. And so that ensured that I was able to get that back. I didn't have to worry about mail or, as you pointed out, scanning and faxing that people sometimes don't have access to. All right. Well, that that that's certainly uh, something that um, we may we may need to build into our outpatient budgets and so forth to uh, to get more right. access to that. Um, how about um, things where you're kind of your? Um, I've always done things like draw a person, or I have a, a, mm -hmm. a couple of little books that I have the child read, or um, um, I'll have them do. Uh, I'll have them run. I, I For my hyperactive kids, I usually start off with a session and I say, I want to see how fast you can run. And really, I want to see what your brakes are like. And so I'm going to yell, stop. And then you stop. And I that often warms the kid up and, you know, everybody laughs and I can look and see how coordinated the kid is and so forth. How do we, 
well, I don't know that you can do that, but, but thinking about those kinds of things, what sorts of workarounds have you found useful? Well, starting with a really fun one you talked about, seeing the kid run, run, spot, run. Uh, part of that is the way you frame the camera in the room and how much of a view you're able to capture. So, you know, for that part of the session, you may instruct them to pull the camera back so you can see more of the room, so you can see them run back and forth, so you can see them do jumping jacks or, you know, testing the repetitive motions or coordination. That, that certainly has been a lot of fun, but then you have to encourage them, all right, bring it closer to the screen so I can see you clearly again. Uh, one of the things that I use as a timing tool for engagement and rapport is there are sometimes we need to talk a little extensively with the parent or parents. And at that point, I'll initiate the kinetic family drawing task or the draw a person task, having the child then do that on their own while I'm talking to the parents. That way I don't have to keep the kid engaged while we're doing that adult speak. And then when they're done, you can oftentimes see when their eye shifts back and they start looking around, you can query, are you done yet? And then you have them literally hold it up to the camera and mm -hmm. they can show it off. There are some programs where a whiteboard is built into the video conferencing software. And with those programs, I have enjoyed turning over the whiteboard to the kid and having them draw on the whiteboard because then I can even save that picture that they draw. And I've even done the old squiggle game, that collaborative drawing game where they start a picture and you finish it. I've done that with kids on a whiteboard and that's been a lot of fun too. Mm -hmm. oh, I haven't thought about the squiggle game in a long time. Um, well, there, there are sometimes, we have a split screen in the, in the software we're using. Um, we have a split screen possibility where I was thinking, okay, the child can do his thing and hold, you know, hold it up and we can look and he can show me it, what the, uh, what the issues are. And we did the other day, we had the child do a drawing and he held it up and I screen, I screenshotted it with my mm -hmm. cell phone. So that I was able to take a picture of it. Absolutely. Um, and there are functions on your computer to do that too, um, where you can capture that part of the screen, uh, on the computer display and get a little higher resolution of that picture. Dr. Roth, um, I think it's probably um, time for us to wrap this up for the moment. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking. We had uh, a an, an opportunity to talk about how to set up a telepsychiatry interview, um, what kinds of uh, office equipment, and, and they're not equipment, but office setting we need. Um, and we will talk next time about the kind of materials we might need in order to complete the evaluation. So um, again, I thank you very much for your time and I look forward to the next interview. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you soon. For more information, please access the ACAP APA Telepsychiatry Toolkit, as well as Dr. Roth's website, mindbodyworks.com. Thank you all very much for tuning in. This is Gay Carlson for ACAP's Screenside Chats.